A man is on stage. He is speaking at Cornell University. He is an economist and a recipient of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. He tells the students a story. A story of two poles. I am sure many of you have heard the funny, the old story about the two poles who met one another and one pole said to the other, tell me, do you know the difference between capitalism and socialism? And the other pole said, no, I don't know the difference. And the first pole said, well, you know, under capitalism, man exploits man. And the other fellow shook his head. Well, under socialism, he said, it's vice versa. That was Milton Friedman. A man who forever held the idea that capitalism was always the better option. A man who proclaimed that the business of business is business, meaning that profit making was to be a company's main aim. Creating shareholder value is a company's main aim. The business of business is business, he said. Philanthropy, he said, could be done later with the man's money if he chose to. But a company's job is to deliver him profits. This tale is side one, story one. Story two is about a few Zoroastrian priests. The priests that fled their homeland as a result of religious persecution. This happened after the fall of the Sassanid Empire in Persia. These priests belonged to one of the world's oldest monotheistic religions and worshipped Ahura Mazda. Representing the people that sought refuge in this land, they went to the king Jadirana. According to the Zoroastrian telling of these events, Jadirana was the king that ruled Gujarat in India at the time. The king had some reservations about letting these people in. He showed them a vessel filled with milk to the brim. He showed it to them to represent that there were already people in this land who called the region their own. The head priest took a pinch of sugar and put it into the cup. The sugar dissolved into the milk. This was the priest's way of signaling to the king that they would join the populace of the land and make the place even better and make sure nothing spills out. Many centuries later, a man from a priestly family descended from these very people starts a business enterprise. His people were now a part of India and were referred to as the Parsis. He created a business empire one that was and still continues to be one of India's biggest business empires. An empire that is admired the world over today for its philanthropy. Now, I wonder what would that man tell Milton Friedman? Hello everyone. Welcome Talking of Giants, a podcast about the giants of various fields. In season one, we're doing brands. Today's story is about a behemoth, the Tata Group. Jamsechi Tata sat in a lecture much like the students who listened 
to Milton Friedman during that speech at Cornell. It was the late 1800s. It was a lecture by Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish mathematician and historian. Thomas Carlyle talked about how a country needs to realize the potential of iron. A country that understood the value of iron, he said, would reap those benefits in gold. Jamshedji Tata, the founder of the eponymous Tata Group, listened and took it all in. It was to guide his life strongly going forward. At this point, he was already in his 40s. So, let's start at the beginning. The story starts with Jamshedji Tata's father, Nusirwanji Tata. Born in a family of priests, Nusirwanji was made for bigger ambitions. With not much capital or a high level of education, he left his native town of Navsari to go to Bombay, the present-day Mumbai. The city that was and remains a city where dreams Nusirwanji started his life as a businessman by trading in cotton. Having been married at a very young age, his wife soon joined him in Bombay. Nusirwanji had dreamed big dreams when he came to Bombay, leaving behind the town of Navsari that he had always known and coming to a city where he had no family background was a huge step. It was a considerable amount of risk to have given up his place, his social stature in Navsari and to have come here. But then you see the story of his son, Jemseji, and then you wonder, hmm, Nusirwanji is all right because the risks Jamshedji took, oh my, Jamshedji went all out. Jamshedji Tata was born in 1839. These were the times when there was a lot of discussion among the ruling British about civilizing the Indian population. One of the measures they took up to achieve this end was to bring in ample English education. Also, there was a lot of debate during this time among Indians about this particular fact. Does learning English mean giving up an identity or is it procuring a voice? The Parsi community seems to have gotten the memo early on. English was going to be crucial in the fight for one's freedoms and liberties. Knowledge of the language put you in touch with the world and enabled you to speak for yourself and your people. Realizing this, Jamshedji was given a great education for his times. He went to the premier Elphinstone College in Bombay when he was 17. It was here that he would develop a love for the English language and for the works of greats like Dickens and Mark Twain. By the time he was 20, not only did Jamshedji have an education, he also had a wife and, owing to an early marriage, a son. The loving couple named him Dorabji Tata. But this was not the start of a calm, familial life for Jamshedji. His entrepreneurial life awaited him. On the insistence of his father, he went to Hong Kong 
to set up a firm jamshed ji and ardeshir this firm traded in cotton and opium for context hong kong at the time was still a british colony and it was not strictly illegal at the time to deal in opium except in china but hong kong was not as alien a place to jamshed ji as bombay was to his father when he started this was because dada boy tata nusarwan ji's brother in law also had an operation there his son ratan ji was 17 years older than jamshed ji and please please don't don't confuse yourself i will refer back to these names when they become necessary for the narrative because by the end of the story there will be three ratans all linked to the tata family for now nusarwan ji is the grandfather our hero jamshed ji is the father and dorab ji is his son the business in hong kong bloomed jamshed ji even went ahead and set up another entity in shanghai china this was to expand the trade in cotton by the time the 1860s came around america was in a civil war winston churchill almost a century later would become famous for his words never let a good crisis go to waste in the 1860s the tatas already had this piece of wisdom war in america meant that the cotton supply to england was cut because you see cotton was grown in the southern states using slaves when the when the war was based greatly on whether or not slavery was an okay thing the supply of cotton was bound to crash the mills in lancashire england were in dire need of cotton supply the lack of cotton supply for the foreseeable future meant that not only that the mills in lancashire would go bankrupt but this was a threat to the very existence of the east india company this was bad in a crisis like this the tata struck gold they were able to supply cotton to the supply starved english mills they were able to charge double prices the kick of prosperity that came from this would push the tatas way ahead in their business growth it was time to play at the big table it was time to open a branch in europe and then they almost went broke jamshed ji boarded a ship and set sail to england all was going well but upon reaching jamshed ji realized how dire the situation was all factors indicated that the american civil war would soon end this prediction came true very soon by 1865 the american civil war did end traders from india were way too invested in the supply of cotton to england during this time all of that was slashed in one go as america came back up on its feet england started buying from america again traders in bombay went so far as committing suicide because of their huge losses investors were demanding money back from the tata partnership this was the biggest crisis of jamshed ji's life till that point but young jamshed ji rose to the occasion he was so convincing that he was appointed as the liquidator of his own company his job was to sell off assets and pay off the debts and he was even paid a salary to do this i mean jamshed ji had game man 
Nusirwanji had to sell off his house in Bombay to pay back the debts. This ethical standing of the Tatas carries on to this day. In many stories in its now more than 100 year history, the same virtue can be seen. Recovery however was not far away for the Tata family. In 1868, 3 years after the end of the American Civil War, Abyssinia was in a conflict with the British Empire. An army of 16,000 troops had to be mobilized. And naturally the logistics and material supply and food for an army of this size would be a huge contract. The man who was going to receive that contract would have it as a blessing from the heavens above. And that man turned out to be Nusirwanji Tata. All through this time, Jamshed ji was gaining exposure in the mills of Liverpool and Lancashire and the Tata family was saved and came back into form due to the contract from the British army. In 1869, Jamshed ji bought a defunct oil mill and named it Alexandria Mills. He turned it into a cotton mill. He turned its fortunes around and sold it off for a profit within 2 years. By this time, Jamshed ji was well aware that to get ahead, it was not merely enough to trade in cotton, but you had to spin and weave it in house too. Father and son set out to create a mill of their own in Nagpur. This was against conventional wisdom because mills at the time were concentrated around Bombay. But Nusirwan ji and Jamshed ji calculated that due to the raw materials and the fields being closer to Nagpur it would be a better choice. Initially they were refused financing by the local money lenders because it was deemed as a project where they were throwing money into the soil. But Jamshed ji strived found his financing and successfully completed his mill. Empress Mills he named it in 1877. after queen victoria the empress of india but starting something on the road less taken is not always as dreamy as we might imagine bombay has always been the hustle capital of india in terms of work ethic bombay is the new york of india a finance capital where your work can change your life and the attitude towards work is that you do all you can do to get to where you need to But Nagpur was not so. The workers Jamshed ji had in Nagpur were quite laid back at the time. An 80% attendance rate was something you had to be thankful for. Attrition was high. Shouldn't these people just be fired and better men hired? Isn't the business of business after all business? The Tatas however took a different approach. They introduced provident schemes for the workers this made sure that they could live a decent life even after retirement they conducted family days and sports days regularly in the factory there was even an insurance scheme to cover work related injuries all of these measures were much ahead of their time and they were not even mandated by the government empress mills took care of its employees and the employees did the same back Attrition fell down significantly and Empress Mills stands as a great success in the Tata journey.
Now, for the last leg of this part of the Tata journey, let us go back to the lecture. The lecture of Thomas Carlyle that inspired Jamshedji about the importance of iron. India during the time of Jamshedji did not have a considerable iron and steel factory to call its own. In an age that was seeing rapid growth in infrastructure around the world, iron would end up being a prime input. Jamshedji knew as much. Two significant attempts in testing the soil and viability were conducted by the Tatas, one in Chanda and one in Durg. The projects did not take off due to inferior quality of the mineral and lack of nearby water, respectively. It was only in the early 1900s that fortune knocked on their door. But to be fair, the Tatas had been sitting at that door waiting for the knock for a long, long time. Jamshedji Tata received a letter from the geologist P. N. Bose. He had worked in Durg earlier and now was placed in the princely state of Mayurbhanj. P. N. Bose indicated that not only was the soil in Mayurbhanj rich with iron ore, but also that the king was willing to give favourable terms to anyone who wanted to set up an iron and steel plant. By this point, Jamshedji was an elderly man with two adult sons, Dorabji and Ratanji. Dorabji set out with a team put together by Jamshedji Tata. When they finally made it there, the team was overjoyed. They finally went there and ran the tests and realized the mineral was rich. The water supply that they needed was also given to them by two rivers that were nearby. What follows next is what amuses me. This was a rich family. They could have done a hundred other things with their money. But for a mix of reasons that included the country's self-reliance and long-term business prospects, they chose to enter this nightmare of an investment. They had to navigate forests and terrible terrains to get this started. Even beyond all this, there is that letter. A letter Jamshedji wrote to his son. Jamshedji wrote asking his son to make sure proper city planning was done. He told his son to make sure the roads were wide and that there were fast growing trees planted on either side. He also asked him to make allocations for fields for playing sports. Build places of worship, he said. After going through so much, his focus was on creating a city. He had seen in England how the lower classes around the mills of Lancashire lived. They lived in really bad conditions. He was not going to make something similar a part of his legacy. He was putting in all this money into a city while the factory was still years away from producing an ingot of steel. But still, there he was, writing instructions to his son to build a city, a city of the future. No wonder that Jamshedji is referred to as the man who saw tomorrow. That city that the Tatas built is today known 
as Jamshedpur. Shouldn't Jamshedji Tata have just stuck to making the best returns for his company? Isn't the business of business improving shareholder value? Was Jamshedji a good nation builder but a bad businessman? A generation later, his sons would write an enormous amount of their wealth over to charities. So enormous that even today, Tata Sons, the current holding company of the Tata Group, has its majority owned by these charitable organizations. So were his sons bad businessmen too? I think not. No, they are not. Over the course of my studies in economics and reading many business tales and theories, there seems to be an idea. An idea that somehow money making and welfare are two different things. That they live in separate worlds. One world that would squeeze the last penny out of its workers and then make a nice donation later on to some grand hall to which their name would be given. Then there is a world of cooperatives or socialist establishments which work for welfare but end up not being very efficient for progress. But the world does not have to function in these absolutes. There is a space, a tiny space where these both worlds meet. A place where profit meets welfare. A place where empowering employees in Empress Mills is the way to create a culture of supporting each other which leads to success. A tiny space where creating a livable city is the way to create a steel emitting monster of a factory in the middle of nowhere. A tiny space where instead of making donations after keeping a grand chunk, men leave their entire estates to charity. A tiny space where men can be nation builders and also the best businessmen of their times. In this tiny space, the Tatas have forever lived and continue to do so. This was part one in my retelling of the Tata story. Any feedback you have would be welcome. Talking of Giants is a student wiki podcast hosted by Vikhyat Mutyala. The soundtrack has been composed by Bertie Ashley. You can contact me Vikhyat Mutyala at talkingofgiants at gmail.com. That is talkingofgiants at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show.